Hello and welcome to Food for Thought, the CL Paris podcast. Thank you for your company. Now, we always need to eat, so farming and food processing will always have a future, but the changes impacting these sectors are huge. At a time of transitions, reinventions and global social responsibility, CL Paris is reaffirming its ambition by uniting food professionals around the major transformations taking place in the industry. I'm your host, Bryn Lucas, and my guest this time is Brian Choi, Managing Partner and CEO of the Food Institute, a leading source for food industry news, data and market trends. We'll be chatting about how the food industry is at a crossroads and what the future will look like. But before we get to that, here's some news from the CL Paris Newsroom. The farm-to-table movement has gained significant momentum in recent years. This culinary philosophy emphasises the direct sourcing of ingredients from local farms and producers, promoting sustainability, freshness and a deeper connection between food and its origins. It is rooted in the belief that food should be sourced as locally as possible, minimising the carbon footprint associated with transportation and supporting local agriculture – highlighting the importance of seasonality, with chefs and restaurateurs incorporating only the freshest locally available ingredients into their menus. As the concept continues to gain popularity, its impact is expected to grow. Consumers are increasingly conscious of the importance of sustainable practices and ethical sourcing in the food they consume. The movement has inspired collaborations between chefs, farmers and producers – fostering innovation and creating a more resilient food system. Brown Foreman Corporation, one of the world's biggest spirits companies and owners of brands like Jack Daniels, Woodford Reserve, Finlandia Vodka, Gin Mare and Diplomatica Rum, is making some major changes in Japan and Mexico as it seeks to grow its business in both countries. The American-owned Kentucky-based spirits and wine company has announced plans to distribute its own brands in Japan, effective from the 1st of April 2024. Meanwhile, in Mexico, tequila production is going to be enhanced, helped by an investment of 20 million US dollars. The Japanese movement is the more strategic one, as Brown Foreman will decouple from its longtime distribution partner Asahi by the end of March next year. Japan is one of the world's largest spirits markets with a significant footprint and leading position in premium plus whiskey. The country's whiskey producers are also influencing the scotch market. According to Statistica, the sales volume of whiskies in Japan amounted to around 170,000 kilolitres in the fiscal year 2020, an increase from about 97 kilolitres in the fiscal year 2011, but down from the 2019's high of 186,000 kilolitres. Elsewhere, the US Meat Export Federation is bolstering efforts to expand the international footprint for American-produced red meat and bolster demand for underutilised pork, beef and lamb cuts in light of world conditions. At the Association's Spring Conference at the end of May in Minneapolis, senior staff updated members on industry efforts to take advantage of global changes, including the sharp decline in European pork production, which fell nearly 6% last year. Pork production in Europe is set to continue falling this year, giving the American pork industry an outstanding position to capitalise 
on a favourable price and supply situation, especially in the Asia-Pacific region, according to the Federation. More news coming up a little bit later on, but don't forget you can check out all those stories and more just by visiting the CL Newsroom. Go to newsroom at clparis.com. But now to my special guest, and as mentioned before, joining me this time is Brian Choi, Managing Partner and CEO of the Food Institute, a leading source for food industry news, data and market trends. He's also an experienced financial executive, having worked at a number of high-profile financial organisations in the food and agricultural industry. Well, Brian, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Uh, It's great to have you along. Thanks, Bren. Happy to be part of the program today. Now, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your career to date? Sure. Well, I started my career working on Wall Street. I worked at Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers as part of their capital markets and investment banking firms. I also spent a number of years in consulting, helping to build Ernest & Young's transaction group in New York City. Uh, I spent about four years in private equity, where I was an M&A specialist for a private equity firm based out in South Florida. And then in 2020, I shifted gears completely, and I personally acquired the Food Institute, which is one of the leading food and beverage uh, media organizations here in the U.S., and uh, been building that over the past three and a half years. So it's been a great ride so far. Why food then? Why the food industry? What was the attraction? In each of the the previous roles in investment banking, consulting, and private equity, the food industry was the main industry that I worked in. So having worked with a number of food and beverage companies across the supply chain, it really just made sense, right? And so I understand the industry. I talked to a lot of executives in food and beverage. And so it was a natural uh, progression, you know, as uh, taken over the Food Institute. Now, a passion of, of food sounds like you must have a little, <laughs> bit of, a little bit of that going on. But you recently, you've written a lot of articles, but you recently wrote one that appeared on the Food uh, Institute website. The food industry is at a crossroads was the the big title of it. Can you tell us a bit more about the article and this crossroads that the food industry is currently at? Yeah, so you know the article really uh, started. I started thinking about it uh, over the past six months, reflecting on what's really happened. Not not just as a uh, as a result of the pandemic, but over the past fifteen years, right? So you know, I I started my career working at uh, you know on Wall Street, working for Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers. So I was there when Lehman went down. Uh, you know, when the when the bankruptcy happened, right? And so what, what I've observed is that since then, up until about 20, 2019, things have kind of been kind of steady eddy, you know, 2% growth, 2% inflation, you know, not too many, you know, not too much volatility in the markets. Then the pandemic happened, right? It, it, it was like, everything kind of shut down immediately, Right. And so, you know, two years was really thinking, rethinking about supply chains, keeping costs low to just manage through through that period. And now as we're moving out of the pandemic, the world has changed. Right. And so a lot of companies and a lot of leaders at these companies, they're ill equipped, in my opinion, to navigate the next three, five and even 10 years. And there's a great quote by Charles Darwin um, circa 18, in the 1800s, where he says that it is not the strongest of species that survives, nor the most intelligent, but the one most responsive to change. So that sort of mentality is I what I believe is um, what companies really need. Companies are currently ill-equipped to navigate kind of the complexities of the world, uh, consumer trends, technology, AI. 
so the the real uh, conclusion of the article is that you know companies need a new type of leader that have multiple skill sets um, that are able to pivot very quickly uh, with changing um, scenarios, changing market conditions, changing consumer trends, and that's really it. And so that's why I've titled the 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 article "The Food Industry Is at a Crossroads." Maybe we should have prefixed that with a spoiler alert there about the end <laughs> of the article. But it's interesting how. You mentioned really the change, say 15 years ago, the food industry was kind of bobbing along, it was all going fine. The world was just bobbing along, really, everything was right. was taking care of itself. The pandemic, as often happens in moments of, of uproar, upheaval, I suppose, things change quite quickly. And it seems that this, this change now with AI, as you say, the way the world is changing with our food demands, the way we look at everything... Everything is just is just rolling on much more quickly now. It's like an avalanche, isn't it, down a hill where it just gains pace and you can't slow it down. Have you noticed that there's a, a difference in not just the food industry as as companies that are producing food, but also the consumers? Have you noticed that this change in consumers has been driven by anything in particular? Absolutely, and I think um, especially in the in the younger generation. So I would I would characterize that as you know Gen Alpha. Gen Z and even sort of the millennial demographics, they've been so much more exposed to media. And so when I say media, they're spending five hours a day on their phones or digital devices, right? So in the previous generation, Gen X and even the baby boomer generation, that wasn't really the case. And so as the media and the proliferation of data and information, as it exploded over the past 10 years, that's also changing the way consumers think about food you know, how they learn about new types of food and generate interest in different types of food and beverages. So absolutely, the Food Institute did a study alongside with Mondelez International, one of the leading snack food manufacturers. And what we've noticed is that in particular with these younger demographics, not only are they eating more snacks, right? So that went up from about 3.1 snacks, you know, per person per day to about 3.3. That's about a 6-7% increase. But even the penetration, the number of people within countries that are snacking on a more regular basis, that's, that went up from about 78% penetration to about 86%. So absolutely, all of these factors, you know, especially sort of the media and the proliferation of people being on their devices, <laughs> that's changing the way people think about food, right? You think about like some of the influencers out there that are getting in the food business. So that's also, you know, uh, making consumers more interested in trying new types of food and beverages. And I suppose with snacking, we when we think of snacking, we think of of always the kind of the, the things that are in, in, in wrappers that are right near the counter, the chocolate exactly. bars, those sort of things. But it's also, I think, maybe consumers are being more switched on to the health idea. And if there's a health angle with snacks, they'll look down that route as well. So it's opened up doors, hasn't it, to be able to make something that appeals to the market. Absolutely. So health and wellness is a huge mega trend. Um, it's the convenience factor. You know, consumers, especially in the younger demographics, they're eating less meals together as a family, right? So if something is quick, if something is easy, they can just pick it up at the store. That's also changing the way people eat food. A lot of factors, a lot of confluence of factors are impacting the way consumers eat today. I want to just dive back to your article. It can be read in full at thefoodinstitute.com. But you state in the column that inflation, financial instability, uh, geopolitical risks and economic recession are all factors in the current food industry climate. But also consumer needs have become more complex. Uh, we just sort of touched upon it there. But from your perspective, how well is the industry reacting to this? 
Um, what can be done to aid this ever-changing playing field? The industry it has some has been somewhat slow to adapt. I think there's still um, this perception that things are going to go back to normal. And when I say normal, you know, back to pre-COVID days. So a lot of the the, the folks that I talk to on a regular basis, and I'll give you one example. Um, you know, there's a billion dollar. Uh, food company, you know, that I talk to on a regular basis, I joined their, um, you know, their board meetings. And what I've noticed is that the the mentality, you know, for the for this one particular company is, oh, like how to meet budget over the next three months. So they're not they're not really thinking about what's going how the world is changing, you know, how consumers are changing, you know, what's the roadmap over the next one, three, five, 10 years, the focus is on the next three months. So a lot of companies are, they have that that mentality. And so they've been slow to to adapt, right? And so this is where information really becomes key, right? And this is one of the reasons why I purchased the Food Institute is how do I change the hearts and minds of, of executives that lead these businesses? What information do they need to be well-equipped? Yeah, so I would say, number one, the a lot of the leaders have of these industries have been slow to react. Uh, and adapt their strategies. And number two, you ask the question, what can be done? It's about education. It's it's about finding the right types of leaders to to lead divisions and companies, and also bringing in different types of advisors that might not be part of the tr- quote traditional uh, roles, uh, but that can challenge the way leaders think about growth and opportunity. I'm nodding along really because I think it's the same with with a lot of different industries, isn't it? Really, a lot of different businesses. If you can bring people in from the outside who maybe aren't completely familiar with that particular topic, but can look at it in a slightly different direction or from a slightly different angle, they can often find solutions to the problems because they're not stuck in the in the one road mindset that many people are. Absolutely. And I'll, and I'll give a personal example. So I, I don't come from media, but I acquired a media company, right? So I shared a little bit about my background in investment banking, consulting and private equity, right? And and I think that not having a quote media and traditional journal journalism background helped me and the Food Institute grow like 500, 600% over the past three years, right? If you look at most of the traditional media companies, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, they've been struggling, right? Because the traditional model doesn't work anymore. It goes to your point that it's not just in food, it's many different types of companies in different industries, a new type of thinking is needed. Yeah, I think you're right. So what sort of information are you able to provide? And how is that information useful to different institutions or companies? Yeah, so we our content goes out through articles, podcasts, digital video webinars, we do a weekly newscast on Fridays at at, uh, 12 Eastern time, New York time. Um, So it's it's about news and data like insights-driven content and news. Um, And we do this on a daily basis. A lot of our audience members are in that C-suite level management position. And so as they're consuming the content, they're, they're getting the full breadth of what's happening in food and beverage. So we try to be as broad, but also as as deep, you know, in certain areas that we think leaders really need to be thinking about. So information is power. That's the way, way I like to think about it. And the second thing is, um, a lot of media companies, as you know, Bryn, they're highly politicized and they're highly biased, right? So we we stay away from that. We don't go. We don't have any ideological bent that we want to push and 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 indoctrinate. No, we're in news organizations. We're unbiased. If we're if we're writing content on a certain topic that is somewhat sensitive, we bring both sides and not 
try to push any sort of agenda. So it's it's information and really unbiased information that executives need. Yeah, which is the kind of scientific way of looking at things. You know, you don't comment necessarily on the results. They are just the findings and you you present those as they are and let people work backwards from there, I suppose. Now, carbon neutral is a huge topic. It's been a huge topic, not just in the food industry, but pretty much everything from travel to sport, everywhere you look at it, carbon neutral, net zero by 2050 being that cutoff point, that big thick line in the sand that we always seem to look at. With the food industry itself, can you identify or have you been able to identify any innovations or examples of the food industry maybe adapting to this this new focus and how it's also maybe got one eye on the future with the supply and demand? Yeah, absolutely. There are many different examples. Well, first first of all, I'll say that you know it's a worthy goal, right? And it's something that I think all companies really need to be thinking about. The second thing I'll say is that so you have industry leaders like, for example, Mondelez and you have Nestle really leading that push, right? So not only do you have um, industry leaders, but also government um, institutions. You got World Economic Forum, you have United Nations. So th- there's a concerted effort to to bring sustainability issues to the forefront of many of the corporate agendas of, the, of these companies. So that's that's huge. And the the third, from a regulatory perspective, I think what's what's interesting is that now policies are are being put in place to to help you know companies and and countries get to that point of being being net zero, and then f- from that companies can really take that and produce their own sort of innovation. So whether th- that's in packaging, whether that's in providing food with more kind of plant forward ingredients rather than animal that's an option one example that i've that i'm going to be speaking on at a conference later this month is on precision fermentation right and and even cellular protein which doesn't require the use of raising large swaths of cattle and in and, and other sort of animals for protein they you could produce protein in a in a lab <laughs> right so these are just some of the innovations that are you know that were at the forefront right uh, another example is even insect protein which you know in in many asian countries you know eating insects is part of their diet you know mm-hmm. I'm, I'm korean and so they they eat insects as snacks in in korea right so all of these all of these innovations and in new types of food and process and how they process it really help to uh, get us to that carbon neutral goal. It's about exposure and it's about education, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. So one final question before I let you go. How do you see the changes in what we consume? If you could look into your crystal ball, how we consume it as well, and maybe a more general overview of the next, and I'll make it tricky for you, the next 10 years. So I'll first say that the pandemic has really changed the way consumers you know, live, whether it's, you know, personal to work, you know, that work-life balance, that's really changed the way people live. AI is, and robotics and automation, we're just at the for- forefront of of this. And even even sort of like what what's really exciting is in the virtual world, you know, Apple just released their Vision Pro. And that I think is will be a game changer in the way consumers um, um, interact with the virtual world. So I think there is that, there is that, I think that whole new sort of like white space on how consumers are changing and how they in, even interact with uh, with food and beverage in the future. 
for example, maybe McDonald's will, will create a place in the virtual world of or ordering a burger. So you can order through the virtual world. And then within 10 minutes, there's going to be a burger that arrives at your front door. Right? So that whole arena is is really fascinating to me. I think that, that that's a huge growth potential, even in terms of uh, the ESG movement, right? Environmental social governance. And you, you mentioned sustainability as being a key key aspect of that. That will also change the way consumers eat. Consumers are looking for not you know food and beverage that tastes taste good, but they also want food that helps the planet or that that is consistent with their own values. That's a new type of movement that has tremendous legs. I, I think we're we're also at the forefront of that as well. And I think media as a whole, Brent, you and I are in the media business. That's also going to change the way uh, consumers uh, react and adapt and pivot. So it's an exciting time. Um, it's a challenging time, uh, but uh, but I'm excited. Brian, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Bryn. Thanks for having me on, on the program. Well, thanks there to Brian Choi for giving up his time and giving us all that wonderful insight. Now, before we disappear for another episode, it's back to the CL Newsroom. <laughs> The bioproduction platform Enzymit has announced the successful production of insulin substituents in partnership with food technology company Elif Farms that can reduce the costs and development time for producing cultivated meat at scale. The two Israel-based companies have got together to develop non-animal-derived serum protein substitutes, imitations that promote and support cell growth. Enzymit says this is one of the most prohibitive expenses in scaling up cultivated meat production. Such proteins are not widely available on the market at the quantity, quality and cost necessary for large-scale production. Alif Farms turned to Enzymit to co-develop novel insulin substituents in microorganisms that can fulfil the function of proteins found naturally in animals and do so with greater desired activity per molecule. Enzymit uses artificial intelligence and deep learning to create the insulin substituents as processing aids for making cultivated meat. It is early days, but the success of this collaboration opens the door to additional benefits far beyond the cultivation of cow cells, as insulin is a highly conserved protein across mammals and other species, it has the potential to similarly influence the production of other cultivated meat types, such as pigs, sheep and poultry. And finally, Relay and Chateau take action for sustainable seafood on World Ocean Day. Since 2009, the 580 establishments of Relais and Chateau have been at the forefront of collective efforts spanning over 60 countries. Their mission to sensitise their clientele to the importance of sustainable seafood and the pressing issues surrounding it. By emphasising the seasonal availability of seafood, the company encourages a profound understanding of the interplay between sustainability and the choices we make. Through numerous practising restaurants, they offer delectable dishes that uphold the principles of responsible seafood sourcing. Throughout June, Relais and Chateau's esteemed chefs took centre stage showcasing their culinary expertise and unwavering dedication to sustainable seafood. By inspiring their patrons to reconsider their dining choices, the chefs aim to ignite a transformative wave of change that safeguards our oceans for future generations. Well, don't forget, if you want to read all these stories in full, just head to the newsroom by visiting newsroom at cialparis.com. 
Well, that's it for another episode. I hope you found it enjoyable, interesting, and hopefully a little entertaining too. Once again, thanks to Brian Choi for being my guest. Now, we always want to hear from you as well, so please like and comment and share this episode. And why not subscribe to the channel for more episodes of Food for Thought, the CL Paris podcast. Until next time, goodbye from me.